All right, so uh, we're starting a new, a whole new thing today, and uh, the the title of our course uh, we're starting today is "One New Man: What It Means to Be the Body of Christ." And uh, so today is kind of an introduction. I just kind of want to make a bit of a proposal, uh, you know. Submission for your consideration in uh, rethinking what is the basic nature of the church, and you might think, "Well, why do we need to rethink that?" Uh, like, uh, and maybe we don't. Um, but I do think that, f- from a biblical point of view, the way we typically think about the church, uh, well, we could probably think a little more biblically. Because <laughs> um, <clears throat> I, I guess my own experience and observation is we, we think about the church like we think about our other institutions and uh, organizations. And I think the Bible has something uh, deeper in mind in the way it describes the church. So my, my basic proposal today is the language the Bible uses for the church leads us to a deeper understanding of its nature. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, you've heard me use the word organic uh, as opposed to organization, organism as opposed to organization. Uh, and I find that... At, in American culture, which is a culture that uh, has had a very strong influence in church worldwide, uh, it, we tend to have what I would call an organizational imperative. Uh, so we think of the church as an organization or an enterprise, and we have entrepreneurs as pastors uh, and uh, pastors envisioned something like CEOs and boards of elders, something like boards of directors. Um, and <clears throat> so I, I just want us to, I, you know, we don't need to forget all of that. I, there might be some real value in it. I guess I think there has been some real value in it. But I want to step back from that and see it, and just really kind of focus on the biblical language. The Bible uses certain metaphors to describe the church. In fact, calling them metaphors, I, I don't know. Maybe they're not. Maybe they're more, uh, maybe they're meant to be taken quite literally. So when the church, or when the Bible calls the church a body, uh, well, I, I'm calling that a metaphor, like the church is a body. Okay, it's not really a body, but a body is a good way of describing it. Uh, well, maybe it really, maybe it's more real than we give it credit for. I don't know. But today I just wanted to sort of go through several of these words that the Bible uses for the church and kind of make a basic observation and that observation is that these terms are 
are more organic than they are organizational. Uh, and hopefully as we go, just what I mean by that will become more apparent. Uh, the, the first word, of course, is church. I, you know, that's the word the Bible uses. And the, the word for church is uh, ecclesia in the original language. And, of course, you can see that word reflected in uh, many of the Latinate languages all around the world. Iglesia is just a transliteration of that word. Uh, and that word... Uh, well, it has a root in the same word as the word for the Holy Spirit that we've been talking about, parakaleo. That word kaleo means to call. Like, hey, you, you know, I'm calling, I call someone. I would use this word for naming someone even. He's called, he's called Robert. He's called Don. Uh, and uh, or I could use it to refer to calling on someone. Uh, if I made a phone call, I, this word kaleo, well, you can see the English word call is based on this very word, kaleo, and here the word ecclesia uh, has a kaleo root, and it literally means uh, called out group. So like you announce a meeting and you call people to attend. And so it's the basic word for an assembly of people or a gathering. So the word church literally means assembly. So when we have a meeting on Sunday morning, a worship service, we're the assembly, the church. Uh, and, uh, <clears throat> If you, uh, I just wanted to look at Matthew 16. So we're a group of people called to meet. And you might say, called how and who? Who's called and how are they called? Uh, well, this goes back to, uh, well, really the first use of this word I think we might want to say in the Bible, though it's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to any assembly of people. Uh, but to refer to this uh, specific group of people that in the New Testament we now age, we now call the church, this is kind of the first use of that. And it's in this context where Jesus asks the disciples, who, who are people saying that I am? And people have all kinds of answers to that question. And so he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks for the group and says this. This is Matthew uh, 16, 16. <clears throat> Uh, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. 
you didn't figure this out on your own, but my Father who is in heaven revealed it to you. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. On this rock, I will build my church. That's this word, ecclesia. Now, we want to say, well, what's, what's the rock? Who's Well, uh, in the classic Roman Catholic understanding, Peter himself is the rock. In, uh, uh, I think, a, a more careful understanding of what the text says, it's the confession of Peter that is the rock. And that confession is, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the rock. So the group of people, the calling, the identification of this assembly is people who recognize the correct identity of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the foundation uh, or the I don't want to use the word foundation. Christ himself is the foundation, uh, and our we're a participant in this assembly if we have identified Christ as Christ, the Son of the living God. So this is a, a group of people with a particular confession of faith. Jesus is the Son of God, the Christ. Messiah, Savior, so on. Uh, <clears throat> now, the, the, probably the second most common image the Bible uses for the church is the image of the body. And this is really explicit in the book of Ephesians. In fact, I think the book of Ephesians, uh, though I'm not sure we often read it this way, should be regarded as Paul's theology of the church um, because the subject of the book of Ephesians, apart from Christ, is the church, the body of Christ. And even in, in chapter 1, he concludes, uh, well, sorry, got to find the right place here. He concludes chapter 1 with this declaration of Christ's uh, resurrection and his ascension and him seated at the right hand in the heavenly places. And then he says, this is the end of Ephesians chapter 1, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his Feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. I, I, it, it's one of these things we skip over because maybe we don't understand it on the first read. But I want you to notice that he just called the church the fullness of Christ. That is quite a remarkable thing to say. His body, the fullness of him, who fills all. Uh, <clears throat> but in any case, he goes on in 
in chapter 2, you know, we have that famous passage in the first part of chapter 2 about we were dead and he raised us in Christ, together in Christ. Uh, and by grace you've been saved. But it's important that when we read like verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Now, we can read that, of course, saying he made us alive together with Christ. But I think as we go on through the chapter, we're going to notice it means more than that. He made us alive together, meaning us together, and also together with Christ. So if we go on in the chapter, uh, well, there's no good way to do this other than to read it. <laughs> For by grace you have been saved, verse 8, through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. And the emphasis here is we are his workmanship, not our own workmanship. Uh, but uh, there's also uh, interesting exegetical observation we can make here where it says we, which is a plural pronoun. In other words, we is more than one person. We is us. We are his workmanship, singular. In other words, we are not each a workmanship of his. We are not his workmanships. We are his workmanship. And as we read the whole book of Ephesians, we understand we are talking about our union with one another in Christ. And so what he's observed, what, this is our first spot, well, not the first, but a spot where we can observe this happening, where a group of people is one thing, one work of God, one doing of God, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision. Anyway, he's going to go on. He's going to talk all about the fact that Gentiles were alienated from the people of God, strangers to the covenant, have no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ, verse 13, you who were once far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. For he himself, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made us both, that is, the Jewish chosen people of God and the Gentile alienated people, has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, and here's where we get the title for our whole series, One New Man. One New Man, in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, what we want to observe here is that the the sacrificial work of Christ on the cross is a reconciling work. But it, we, we frequently talk about how it's a reconciling work between us and God. 
well, that certainly is primary. And we tend to think it's a reconciling work between each one of us and God. But what we read here is something deeper, something more, which is it's a reconciling work between us to form one new man and to reconcile us together to God as one new man, right? So if you just check what order things happen in here, he says he uh, created in himself one new man in place of the two and might reconcile us both to God in one body. So the one new man Oh, so we were un- we are united in Christ, in the body of Christ. We're one in the body of Christ, in our union with Christ in his sacrifice. So the effect of his sacrifice is not just on me and you and each one of us, but it's on the body. That's, that's an important thing to notice. Uh, So one new man, a single living organism. Anyway, uh, he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. So reconciliation. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets... Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So uh, this second, uh, well, I'm just going to say metaphor for lack of a better word, is the body. There's one body of Christ, all believers in Christ are joined together in that body, and then as one body, joined to God in Christ. So reconciliation is the work of the cross. And it's not just reconciliation between you and God. It's also reconciliation between you and me and you and you and you between nationalities, between this great chasm that existed beforehand between Jew and Gentile. So that Paul can write in the book of Galatians, in Christ there's no male, female, slave, free, uh, Greek, Jew. We're all one. And what's interesting to me is that creation of the body of Christ is in the cross. It's quite an important thing to notice. The the next thing we see here is we're members of one household of God, which we just read. uh, We used to be strangers and aliens, us Gentiles, but now we're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So you will see uh, the most common way for the New Testament writers to refer to 
other believers is with the word brother. We're brothers in Christ. We're addressed as the brethren. Uh, So we have, uh, and we are the people who have been given the standing to address God as Father or Abba. And uh, so we have the creation of the family of God in the church. The family of God. Now, I just want to stop here for a second, and I don't want to spend too long doing this, but I just want to notice thinking of the church as a family is very different from thinking of the church as a company. It's very important. So, moving on. The, other, the next thing we saw here, right here, was uh, we saw a lot of metaphors getting mixed here, but we're the household of God and we're built on the foundation. Christ himself being the cornerstone, the, the part of the foundation from which all the rest of the foundation and therefore all the rest of the building itself is measured. So the whole structure being joined together. Wow, if you read the book of Ephesians, you will start to notice how important the word together and the word joined are. But the whole structure joined together grows into a temple, a holy temple. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Man, we don't appreciate that very well, I don't think. How, what an amazing thing that is. Uh, so, a dwelling place of God. We're the place where God lives among people. And it's not a building, a, a structure like the temple of the Old Testament. It's the people of God themselves and if you uh, were to flip briefly to 1 Peter chapter 2, you see Peter uses this as well. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Where it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Uh, So again, you have this idea that the individual Christian is one of the stones from which the temple is constructed. And it's it's very common in the modern West for us to each think of ourselves as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And there's that's actually correct. That's you'll read that in uh, the first Corinthians. Well, second Corinthians as well. The spirit dwells in each of us, but the spirit dwells in us together. 
as well. And so uh, the church itself is a dwelling place of God. If we ask, where does God live in the world? The answer is the church. Not just each believer, but the believers together as a group. And if we are one new man, well, each of us is also renewed spiritually, but the representation of Christ in the world is something realized in the body of us together, the whole assembly. Um, And we're going to have a lot more to say about that as we go through this whole course. The last thing, uh, the last word I want to focus on is the word flock. And Jesus said, uh, you know, in, uh, sorry, I'm going to go there, John 10. He talked about this, there's, there's a, another group of sheep, you remember, uh, I'm the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. That's John 10, 14. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Uh... So here again, Jesus is talking about the union of Jews and Gentiles together in the church. Uh, and uh, so his, they're his sheep. He's the shepherd. And they know him. They follow him just the same way he knows and follows the Father. They know and follow him. He lays down his life for them. He brings them all together. Uh So I think, well, a flock, that's a gathering of sheep moving together under the protection and care and guidance of a shepherd. What's the point of a shepherd and a flock of sheep? Well, it's the direction and guidance and care of the shepherd for the sheep. So he leads them to the right pasture or the right water or the right, he leads them, they follow. Um, In 1 Peter chapter 5, we we read this from Peter. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering, or in, in the other 
translations, it says not lording it over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Uh, Now, if we're thinking about the church as as a family, a household, a dwelling place, a body, a flock, with a shepherd... Uh, uh, an assembly of people identified by their identification of Christ. This, uh, in my view, becomes much more uh, personal. Much more personal. And less organizational. Uh, I want to sort of back away from the let's get ourselves together and figure out how to get something done model to let us be who we are called to be and relate in the relationship that the cross of Christ has created and so if we're brothers and sisters, well, we might, we might get together and do things, sure. But is that the main thing? No. If we're a family, that's not the main thing. We, we, uh, the family is where we come back to when we're done working. <laughs> and we do things in, as a family that are about us as a family, now some families start businesses. I guess that's probably okay. Here's what I noticed in the family business that I worked in the more we were a business, the less we were a family. And it became a point of conflict among us. But uh, I'm, I'm sure that's not always the case, of course. Uh, but I think, well, these words, they're not describing the sort of enterprise uh, organizational model that many of us seek to employ in the church. In fact, quite consciously, especially in the U.S., but that's been exported everywhere, we've developed a uh, how-do-we-organize-ourselves-to-get-something-done model. And I think, hmm, let's explore what the ramifications of thinking of ourselves as a body or a household or a temple or a flock, what would be the ramifications of taking those words really seriously? So at the bottom, I have kind of a, conclusion that's I mostly a bunch of examples I just kind of thought of off the top of my head. Uh, 
and to get us to sort of begin to think. And like I said, when I started, I want to sort of propose this to you uh, as a, I don't know, a sort of alternative model, if you will, uh, of what if, let's, let's try this. Let's think about it like this as opposed to that and see where that goes. Um, so I, my title is, uh, it, The Church is an Organism, Not an Organization. Now, organisms are organized, so, you know, we shouldn't get too uh, persnickety about this, too picky, too nitpicky. But I do think if we start thinking in terms of organism, we're going to move away somewhat from organization. Uh, and so that means this. We're, it's more about who we are than it is about what we accomplish. The point, if we read the book of Ephesians, especially the point of the body of Christ is to be... <laughs> someone in the world, and that someone is Christ. It's not so much about what that someone is going to get done other than to exhibit the image of God in the world. It does involve the proclamation of the gospel. It involves doing many things. Uh, But the priority is who we are not what we accomplish. And the leaders of this group are called shepherds, not CEOs. So when I think of myself as the pastor or the elders of our church as pastors, because that word shepherd, the flock, the word shepherd is the word pastor. (laughs) Uh, It means that... Someone who the word pastor means one somebody who watches sheep, uh, <clears throat> and so all the elders in the church are pastors, and the pastor is just one more elder. But the uh, it's important to me that we notice that those people are are not generals or commanders. In fact, the, Jesus specifically says. You know how the Gentiles do. They lord it over each other. Well, you're not to do it that way. And I think Peter remembers that lesson in that text we read from 1 Peter. And he says, shepherd, not lording. He uses the exact same word Jesus used. And he says, not under compulsion, but eagerly. So I don't, God is not my boss. He is Lord. But he's, he is not organizing a company here. He's organizing a family. Yeah, Ed? But don't, don't you think as a congregation gets larger, the shift between a shepherd and the CEO? It might get. It's, it's very difficult. It, got, to be a it might get. 20,000 people. It might get more and more difficult. Yeah. Right. And. Maybe that tells us something about how big a congregation needs to be. 
I don't, you know, that's a very interesting implication. Like, okay, so, and the, the scripture has envisions a group of elders for any particular congregation, right? Not one, but a group. It's always a group. Uh, and uh, so it's a group overseeing a group. And so, and of course, the church is the whole group, not just any given local congregation. So how does that play out? It's a really interesting thing to think about. And so maybe, maybe a local church doesn't need to be a thousand people. Maybe it wouldn't be good if it is. Maybe it's not entirely obviously good if it is. I mean, we tend to think in terms like, well, that's obviously good. Look at all those people. That just, looks like success. Just like a shepherd couldn't take care of a herd of 2,000 sheep. Yeah. Well, he's got to have the little shepherds. He would be the CEO of the flock. And, <laughs> and it's clear in the New Testament that that's kind of the idea. Like, there's not just one. I mean, there's one shepherd, and then there's a bunch of sheep shepherds. And there's a lot of them. You know, Moses had that same problem. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and his father-in-law told him right. exactly what we're talking about. Right, so get some help. Yeah. And also, to me, this has the implication of there's not just one. And so uh, if I have the, if I'm formulating the concept of pastor as CEO, well then everything comes back to the one guy. I don't think that's a particularly biblical approach. Uh, and one guy is just not going to prove sufficient. And we're talking about brothers, not employees. And that's, that's, that is a, to me, that is a big transformation in the mindset of the pastors or elders is to say, look, these people where we're the designated shepherds, they're not, they don't work for us. In fact, if we read First Peter carefully, we work for them. It's exemplary service. I set an example of servanthood. We have an expression in the church in general called servant leadership. And uh, I read most of this book one time and it convinced me that it might be a good idea to turn that label upside down. And instead of talking about servant leadership, where the main function is leadership and the mode of that of leadership is service, to leading servants. You see how that flips? <laughs> so instead of being a servant leader, I'm a leading servant. In other words, I'm out serving everyone and getting them to follow me in that model. Oh, that, okay. The world has a concept of servant leadership. People, uh, when they go into politics, they like to talk, they don't like to say, I went into politics, do they? But what they like to say is, I went into a life of public service. We know there, look, Jesus said, you know how the Gentiles are. It's all about the power. 
Well, here we're supposed to be the odd group of people where it's not at all about the power. That is weird, weird. And it moves us away from that sort of organizational idea where there's a guy in charge and everybody, as long as everyone does what he says, everything will go where he needs it to go. Yeah, okay. Uh, I'm an elder, not a manager. I'm setting an example, I'm not lording. I got to tell you, that's hard to do if someone says, hey, you're the guy in charge. It becomes really hard to example and not lord. Uh, our, our message is gospel, not law. In fact, I really think that right there is kind of at the heart of this whole thing. Our message is gospel, not law. We only teach the law in order to get to the gospel. We, we teach the law to sort of crush people with it so that they see they need the gospel. And then they're free by the gospel. And then suddenly they like the direction of the law. You know, it transforms them into obedient people, but not by law but by grace. I don't make you obedient by insisting on your obedience and commanding it and threatening. I make you obedient by releasing you from all the threat. Upside down, not the way things normally work in the mindset of us humans. Exactly. Grace, not merit. In the organizational model, It is a merit system. Your value to the organization is the value you produce toward the organization's objectives. The church is not a merit system. And so your value as a member of the church is not based even a little on your perceived contribution to our goals. (laughs) We're going to see this repeated in Paul's discussion of the gifts when he says, look, the gifts that show are no more important than the gifts that don't show. The gifts and the ministries of the people you never notice might be more important than the gifts you see every Sunday. Ah, Weird, weird. But it's an organism, not an organization. Uh, We operate by faith and not by works. We operate according to the model of Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Not because he was commanded, though he was commanded. But he, he was commanded and happily volunteered. And the thing that he, the way he endured the cross was for the joy. The joy of fulfilling the Father's word, the joy of 
completing our, I mean, the joy. Completing our redemption, I was going to say. An organism has a life, not a set of goals. (laughs) And it seems to me that the goal of the body, as it's envisioned in the Bible, is to exhibit that life. That, so in our case, if we stopped and gave some thought to what our goal actually should be, it's to be alive in a certain way. To exhibit that life. To proclaim that life. To invite people to join that life. Well, that's a bit much different thing than saying the, uh, calling the the mandate of the gospel. In other words, to say it's on us to go win souls for Jesus. Well, I mean, that's not false. That's a, that is a way of saying what our mission is. But it seems to me as we move toward a more organic understanding of what the church is, we're also going to move to a more organic understanding of what our mission is. And as we obey the commandment of Christ, love one another as I've loved you, something we do within the body, we exhibit the fellowship purchased at the high price of the blood of Christ. We exhibit that among ourselves. And I'm much more focused on how well are we loving each other than I am about what our program is. Uh, And I'm much more concerned about that. It seems to me, well, I I guess here's sort of where I'm headed is, I sure would like to see what would happen if we adjusted our thinking this way. Uh, So we have a life, not, not a set of goals. We are called to be an incarnation. If Let's think about Jesus himself. Jesus himself is the incarnation of God in the world. We're the body of Christ in the world today. We're called to be an incarnation of Christ in the world today. And that is much more than a simple spokesman. In other words, We're not just called to speak for God. We're called to exhibit God in the way we are, not just in what we say. And this is primarily about the quality of our love for one another and anyone else who comes along. Uh, So an incarnation, not just... This is what we're talking about when we say Jesus is the speech of God. Jesus doesn't just speak for God. He's the Word made flesh. So we want to be not just people who speak the Word of God, but people who incarnate the Word of God, who who become it. Uh, And then finally, and this is only finally because, you know, this is when I ran out of time for making this list and space on this piece of paper, uh, we're, we're, as an organism, we're a community, not a company. And in my mind, 
the influence of American culture in the church has moved the church worldwide toward thinking about, toward a mindset of church as something like a company. And exactly. And quite explicitly, without apology, there's no, I mean, you know, if you read the story of, say, the church growth movement or the various, there's been wave after wave of this, they all come from American culture. And the, if you read, say, the, the story of the beginning of what came to be called the seeker-sensitive church, it's, it's quite explicit. We're just going to borrow. We're going to go read the business literature and use that wisdom to grow the church and what we grow is a church of 25,000 people. <clears throat> and, uh, and, you know, there's a certain success in that. That, you know, one caution I have for myself is, okay, that looks successful. So, uh, you know, do is that something we really want to... Well, that's that's well, that's the question, right? That's that's the way to drive the question to where it needs to go, and maybe it's both, and we should look and see, and probably it is because God, <laughs> because God works the way God works, even when we're working some other way. <laughs> so you know, God uses something like American culture and its great enterprising spirit to spread the gospel all over the whole wide world. Okay, so he's going to do it even if what we're doing doesn't fit this biblical approach exactly. God still brings the sheep in. (laughs) But for me, this kind of comes back around to... I, I want to see, <laughs> and it will involve, I think, adjusting my idea of success. It might involve letting go of certain ways we try to measure things, like how much money we're bringing in or how many people have come along. If you have 30 people one Sunday come up to the altar, the next week you have 300, does that mean you were more successful the second week? Well, and part of, for me, part of getting to, part, part of this is the promise. It's, it's recognizing whose work it is. In Ephesians we read, we are his work. And I think one of the things we've done in this sort of enterprising approach to church is we've taken the work. Jesus said, I will build my church. And I think if you read the literature of, say, evangelicalism, you'll find a lot of 
we will build his church. In fact, we must. And this drives us to this sort of objective-oriented, commercial kind of approach. Uh, How do you get a lot of customers in your store? Uh, Okay, let's do that. Right. Uh, And, you know, you could say, you could think of it like this. Well, how would you get 10,000 people together? There's a lot of ways. You could, you know, you put on an amazing concert, 10,000 people show up. So maybe what we should do as the church is, uh, I don't know, hire the Rolling Stones. And, And we all laugh. But and we all laugh because it's the Rolling Stones, and they're obviously not Christian. But but at the but at the same time, what's the difference between that proposal and the stuff we actually do, except that it's not the Rolling Stones? You know, we pick a band that won't conflict with the message we think. You could say, well, we'll fill a stadium with people. I know. Let's just have, let's just get a bunch of our rich guys to throw a bunch of money together and offer free beer and pizza. Well, millions of people will show up for free beer and pizza. And then some of us will say, well, not beer. And I think, well, yeah, okay, maybe not beer because maybe alcohol is not a good influence in society. I don't know, blah, blah, blah. To me, it doesn't matter. To you, it matters. And we say, okay, not beer, Cokes. And we could get thousands and thousands of people together. Uh Uh-huh. And will those people become the body of Christ? (coughs) Will they exhibit the love of Christ? Will we exhibit the love of Christ to them? Is buying them a Coke and a slice of pizza exhibiting the love of Christ? Maybe in some cases. So, yeah, we, when we take the work and say it's our work, it changes how we do it. It changes what we do. If we recognize it's God's work and we get to be in on it, that's a little different. Anyway, but this is really all just to introduce kind of where I'm going with all this, which is for us to you know, just stop and give this a think and try to think about it from a biblical perspective. And today I just wanted to introduce this idea that, you know, when the Bible talks about the church, it uses these organic terms, family, body, even temple. You think, well, that doesn't seem very organic. Well, until you realize it's made out of living stones and its foundation is Jesus and the apostles. (laughs) Uh, and so it's personal. It's a flock, a bunch of dumb sheep who need somebody else leading them around just to find the right food. Uh, you know, uh, it's very uh, uncorporate. 
And I, I use that term advisedly, advisedly because corporate, that word, corp, is the word body. And in fact, the word corporation is stolen <laughs> from a sort of biblical concept, and that is the concept of a, a, a group of people coming together to form a body. Sorry, that was a big distraction. I'm going to stop, and uh, if you've got questions or observations you'd like to make, um, we can take a few minutes for that. You say there's no coercion to become a Christian. There's who? Sorry? No coercion. Corrosion? Coercion. coercion. But I thought, if you don't believe me, you go to hell. Mm-hmm. So isn't that coercion? No threat. Threat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. Is that a is that a coercion? Uh, I I guess I read it like this. Until you believe me, you're still going to hell. That's an op- what's presented as an opportunity from salvation from certain doom, not a threat of doom. The doom has already been carried out. Like judge, the judgment has been made. And now we're talking about the opportunity for mercy. I don't know if that helps you well, at all. But there's another way to look at it too. The guy that is going to hell, uh, he that some most of them don't recognize God. So why are well, you none of them do. If they don't recognize that judgment, hell has no That's rights. Right. So does that mean anything to me? Why? Well, you can't put pressure on me because it doesn't exist. Well, I also, I, I guess this comes around to how do we, how do we preach the good news? Uh, and if, obviously, there's there's ways of preaching the good news that are like focused on the bad news, <laughs> and would could be regarded as coercion or fear mongering. Uh, yeah. So uh, we might be talking about a semantic kind of thing, Don. I don't know, but the that in, in my mind, what the church has to announce is good news. The now that is in contrast to bad news, which is all of humanity is under God's judgment. And if we read, like Jesus says, you must be born again. And, and he's saying, look, this, the Son of Man did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved. And he says, so if you believe in me, you'll be saved. If you don't, well, you're already condemned. Nobody has to condemn you anymore. You're already, that's where you're starting from. I guess for me, then that that means, yeah, I might have to persuade somebody that that's where they're starting from, but that's how I look at it. Not as a threat, not as a, uh, if if you don't do what I tell you, God's going to kill you. It's more like uh, God's going to kill you. 
but he's made a way for you to get out of it. That seems different to me. <laughs> so, yeah. It would be great if everybody could be coerced some kind of way. Well, one of the ways we got into this sort of taking on more duty than is ours to take is a way of thinking in, in the early 19th century in the United States in church, the sort of revivalist way of thinking under uh, somebody, say, like Charles Finney, great preacher. And he said, it doesn't matter how I do it. If I get you to decide for Jesus, that's all that matters. And so it was very coercive. And it was that's when we started having the, the wailing benches at the front, you know, where people would come down front and they'd have to sit there until they were sufficiently repentant. Whatever, I don't know who got to judge sufficiency, but, you know, and that system of calling people forward to make a decision for Christ. Well, the, the preacher in those settings is taking responsibility for leading people to that decision. And I think if we read the scripture, we know... I can argue with you all day long. I could even twist your arm and get you to say you believe in Jesus, but if the Spirit of God hasn't worked in your heart to produce faith, your confession is false. And I might even, I might even convince myself and you that you've been born again when nothing like that has occurred. Uh, and so we... Uh, we sort of took on more than we're called to in that historical setting. And, anyway. and we've continued in that way. I mean, this, this is like still how we are. Even we sometimes uh, rededication. Hmm. Well, if you're saved, why are you going to rededicate? But you don't know, then I yeah. get saved, or then I get saved, so I better go back and get rededicated to make sure. <laughs> well, except rededication, the very word of it says, I don't need it. Because if I'm going to be rededicated, then I was dedicated. I'm just going to do it again. They look at it. They look at, I know. I'm not taking a chance. Well, and nobody ever explains it. There's another way of there's another way of looking at the Christian faith. The way I look at it is like this: all I ever do is rededicate myself. In fact, I'm in constant need of rededication. However dedicated I've been up until now, I rededicate myself. And what I mean by that is, I keep trusting Jesus. I, I trust him harder and more for things I wasn't trusting him for yesterday. I always come back to the gospel at the heart of everything, and this is a liberation to me. I, I'm released from the requirements of the law and suddenly find the requirements of the law appealing. Whereas when I was under them as law, I couldn't make myself obey them. But now that I'm in Christ, I find the liberty by the Spirit to obey them. Very same laws. Uh, <clears throat> and so one way of thinking of this is 
this now this is not what those Baptist camp pastors are preaching when they call kids to come and rededicate themselves to Christ. But I think there's a certain thing they're kind of almost getting right, which is I don't care how mature you are or how long you've been a Christian, the thing you need is to be a Christian. <laughs> the thing you need is to believe in Jesus, to trust him and not yourself. And not so that you can get out and get more done for Jesus, but just because it's what you need. And as we collectively do this, I think we're going to find ourselves getting a lot of things done for Jesus by accident. It's only about depending on him to direct us. Obvious. He's the shepherd, right? Right. We're sheep. We just follow. How much thinking is involved? The thinking that gets you to recognize the shepherd. Now, that might, that's maybe for us, that involves, you know, some deep theological cogitation from the scriptures. Great. But the point of it is, where's the shepherd? What's my, if I'm the under shepherd, if the elders of our church are the under shepherds, what does that mean to be the under shepherd? Shepherd of the shepherd. It means this. I'm here grazing around, you know, I'm one of the sheep and I'm grazing around and I'm, I'm going, so I wonder where we are now. This is the under, this is the, what the under shepherd does. There he is. Over here, guys. He's over here. Because I'm not the actual shepherd, but I have a shepherding role in your life. That's it. I point you to the actual shepherd. We trust him. We go where he goes. Okay, over there, guys. Come on. So when I'm preaching on Sunday, that's all I'm doing. I'm taking the word. I'm going, there he is. Over here, guys. We trust him, remember? Trust me, right? I'm trusting him. Follow me. I'm following him. I... If I stop following him, for heaven's sake, don't follow me anymore. Uh, and that's a, that's a very simple place. And that doesn't mean I can't exercise all the intellectual gifts God has given me in fulfilling that role. Of course I can. Human beings are a spectacular creation made to reflect the very image of God himself. We can develop deep wisdom we can, I mean, we can have a grand old time. Actually, Pastor, um, all, all this um, explanation that you're doing is all about humbleness as well. All about? Humbleness. Oh, man. Not recognizing your ability to teach or whatsoever because everything is from above. Give them. And, so, and if, you, if you do hear his voice and follow him, is it because is it of me? Well, I had a role to play, perhaps, but no, <laughs> ultimately, no. If, if, if I say, there he is, everyone, let, let's, let's move that way. If you actually, if any of us actually move that way, why? Because I'm a great persuader. I could be the greatest persuader. And if you're not his sheep, you will not hear his voice. 
I could be the greatest persuader. And still you need the ministry of the Spirit of God in your soul if you are to see Jesus and follow him. So I, he, he lets me in. A, I mean, the goofy thing is he has some of the sheep playing shepherd. What is he thinking? <laughs> uh, well, he's thinking I'll share. He's generous. He's thinking I will be generous and let some of these sheep pretend to be shepherds. And I'll let them help. And every whatever role I have in the in the body, that's what it is. He's letting me. He's it's whose life is it? His. And he's letting us in on it. Who's building the church? Christ. Whose family is it? God's. Yeah. I find this personally like to be some kind of giant weight lifted off. Like, oh, we're free. Just let's be who we're called to be. Let, let's love one another. <laughs> and if we decide that loving one another involves putting on a concert and inviting people so we can tell them the gospel, great. That, that's fine, but we shouldn't then reverse the priority. If we think loving one another involves having a, a, fun, a fun ministry for kids, I think... Absolutely. Yeah. Let's do it. But if we as a church, we didn't see that. Not every church is going to see that. Not every church has an opportunity for that. We do. So, yeah, let's go for it. How do we know? Sorry, I'm getting ahead in the lesson plan here. But how do we know? Some of the sheep show up here and say, Hey, we'd like to do this. That's how we know. Anyway, I'm still talking. You guys have any other anything else? It's been an hour. <laughs> okay, Father, thanks for uh, this chance to get together, and uh, Lord, thank you for your word, the scriptures, and uh, thank you for the fellowship of the body of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that you are the shepherd and that uh, we, can, we can rest in your care, in your guidance, in your protection. And uh, Lord, we look forward to seeing where you will lead us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.